0: doing today? Good. If you have your copy of scripture, we're going to continue in chapter 12 where we started off last week. And again, just to remind you, chapter 12 is this pivotal point in the gospel of John. It's where everything begins to slow down from chapter one to chapter 12. You're talking about three years of Jesus' life from chapter 12 to chapter 21. You're talking about six days of his life. So everything slows way down, and John starts giving us these very intimate details. He talks about these conversations that he has day in and day out, where he goes from one day and back from the other. And so all of this is very intentional, because remember, John is telling us a story, and he's already told us at the end of the gospel that if he were to write down everything Jesus did, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. So what he really means by that is that what I'm telling you is very, very selective very intentional, and everything is just packed with meaning and symbolism and connection. So whenever we study the gospel of John, you have to slow down and pay attention to it. Um, It's powerful, powerful when we see these connections because John is the last gospel written. He's had time to read all the others. He's reflected. He's already seen the fall of Uh, of the temple he's seen a lot of things before he sits down to write this gospel so when he stops and he begins to selectively put these things together you got to know that he had a lot of intentionality with the kind of stories that he selected and the things that Jesus said and the things that he observed in the years that he followed after Jesus so with that in mind the passage we're going to come into today is a very stark contrast to humanity and you're going to see that in a minute but I want to start with a story that's probably the opposite of that and that goes back to December uh, December 4th, 1977. And this was in a place called Bangu. It's the capital of the Central African Empire. Now the world got to witness the coronation of what was called the Emperor Majesty Bokassa the 1st. Now This whole coronation was designed and choreographed by a French designer by the name of Olivier Bryce. It cost $25 million for this coronation. At 10.10 a.m. the morning, uh, the blaring of the trumpets began. And the thump tum 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 on the drums, just the drum solos were going. And you would know that that, wa- that meant that the emperor, his majesty, was coming this way. With eight of Bukasa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. They were followed by Jean Bidel Bukasa II, who was the heir to the throne. He was dressed in a white admiral's uniform with gold braid. He was seated on a red pillow to the left of the throne. Catherine followed, who was the favorite of Bukasa's nine wives. She was wearing a $73,000 gown made by Lanvin of Paris, strewn with pearls that she had picked out personally. The emperor finally arrives in his gold eagle-bedecked imperial coach, drawn by six matched Anglo-Norman horses. He wore a 32-pound robe decorated with 785,000 pearls and embroidered in gold. On his brow, he wore a gold crown of laurel wreaths like those worn by the Roman gods and was a symbol of the favor of the gods. And as this sacred march came to a conclusion, Bokassa seated himself in his $2.5 million eagle throne. He took his gold laurel wreath off, and just as Napoleon did 173 years prior to this, he put on his $2.5 million crown, which was topped with an 80-carat diamond. And two years later, the French engineered a coup and came in and took over the whole place. So just think about all that he spent in that moment and that time um, lavishing himself because he had sold it to himself that he was worth that, that he was that. And I, I, I give that as an example because absurd as that story is, I think it represents the worst of man. When left to himself with a little bit of power, man will indulge himself. He will indulge himself in self-exaltation. What a difference when compared with what we see of Jesus in this story, who has all power who has all majesty who is the creator of everything there is but what you see is the exact opposite of what comes out of humanity when they have everything and so think about this it's time for Passover John's already told us that last week This is really the structure that John uses for his entire gospel. We talked about that early on, that really Passover, the themes of Passover, the structure of Passover is where he starts from the very beginning. He highlights the themes of Passover throughout the entire gospel. And so Josephus at this time, who was a a Jewish-Roman historian, he says that at this year, this time when we're we're reading about what Jesus was doing, that there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem. Because of Passover. It was the largest crowd ever recorded in this particular year. So there was a lot of expectation. There was a lot of people beginning to think there was something going on. There was probably a lot of people who had heard what Jesus had done. And they were coming into Jerusalem as well. And so all of this was happening. The religious leaders were plotting. The people were looking. The situation was igniting. What a better context for the presentation of a king. And that's what we find beginning in verse 12 of chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So I've mentioned before that John's gospel is radically different than the other three gospels. What you find in the gospel of John is different. He, he highlights different stories from Uh, the ministry of Jesus that aren't even mentioned in the other gospels. And the other gospels will talk about things that John doesn't talk about. The structure of John is far different, where most of them are really uh, using a chronological uh, kind of configuration to write their gospel. John doesn't. He writes thematically. He talks about things he wants to talk about, and he tells you the stories that fit those themes. But oddly enough, when you come to this place right here, this is one of the few times all four gospels have the same exact thing. All four Gospels tell the same exact story, and they tell it in very much the same way. And this passage is, I think the reason they do that is because this passage is so crucial to the turning point of this Gospel story. What happens right here tells us a lot about who Jesus is. It tells us a lot about why Jesus came. Notice the opening words of verse 12, the next day. I want you to tuck that away in your mind because I'm going to bring it back again at the end to show you some incredible significance. But the next day would have meant something to those first century readers. They would have known exactly with the setup that John had given to them what he was talking about. But the next day, if you begin to put all the Gospels together and you see how they formulate the Passion Week, we know that the next day, when this happened, was on a Sunday. It was the first day of the week. It was the first day of the Passion Week. Jesus is literally four days away from being crucified. So we call this in our uh, church celebrations, Palm Sunday, right? Y'all remember that? Y'all probably did that when you're at a Baptist church or a Methodist church, and they have the little kids, and they come and on Palm Sunday. They wave the little palms when people are coming in. You know, it's a big celebration. Actually comes from Roman Catholicism. They're the ones that kind of highlighted it and made it a big deal. Um, but This was actually finds itself in this day on that Sunday. It wasn't something that was normally celebrated or normally done. It was very spontaneous in this moment. And so what happens is they begin to wave these palm fronds around and they begin to lay them down in front of Jesus as he begins to come towards the city. Now, again, I want you to remember, first day of the week, this is Sunday of Passover week. Okay, Very important. Keep that tucked in the back of your mind as well we get to the end of what we're going to talk about today. The picture there also is the large crowd. All those festival goers are there. Some of the people are local people. Some of the people were Galileans who had made a little bit of a journey. Some of them are even Greeks, we will find out in the passage next week, who have come literally seeking Jesus. So the crowds of people that are seeking him are surrounding him And it all still seems to be related to this whole thing that happened with Lazarus, with Jesus calling him out from the grave. Because people had heard of men before, maybe they'd never seen it or met the person, they'd heard of people before who raised the dead in the sense of they were lying on a bed and someone had pronounced them dead and they you know, had them get up out of the bed. They, they, they've seen, heard those things. Never, ever has anyone in all of human history ever heard of someone walking up to a grave that had already been sealed and the body's decomposing and said, move the stone away, calls the person out, and the person walks out living and breathing. So you can imagine a lot of this crowd is centered around what happened with Lazarus. This is spreading like wildfire. People in Jerusalem want to see Lazarus and Jesus. People outside of Jerusalem want to see Lazarus and Jesus. And so all of this excitement is centered around Passover and centered around some of the things that have happened. And all of this is building up to this really, really huge Passover celebration. So John chapter 12, verse 13. So... They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Okay, now here's the thing. You see that in quotes, and you're thinking to yourself that that's a quotation from the Old Testament. And you would probably be right, but you're right only partially. Because what's interesting is the people seem to have created their own little saying right here. They're not quoting directly from an Old Testament passage. They're actually quoting from one passage, and then they're quoting from another, and then they're adding their own little suffix to the, what they've quoted from the Old Testament. And I think when you see that put together, this becomes incredibly powerful. All right. So let's start with this. It used to be that palm branches were only used during the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, you remember us talking about the Feast of Tabernacles not too long ago, and I told you there was this water libation ceremony where they would, the priests would start at the temple and they would take this these golden pitchers and they would start walking through and they would walk to the pool that was in the center of the city and they would dip it in there and they would take this water they would go through these ceremonial ritual. Uh, readings, and, and that while they're doing this, the Levitical choir is singing the whole time, and as they're moving towards the pool, they're all stepping in sequence, and in rhythm, they're like, boom, boom, and they would wave these, it's kind of like palm fronds, but they call them the lulav and the etrog. Okay, One of them is like a citrus fruit, and the other one is these three different kinds of tree limbs put together, tied together, and it would make like a fan, and they would swish it. You ever been out in the yard, and you had like a switch or something like that, and you swish it, and you hear the, like, Okay, imagine about you know a thousand people doing that all at the same time. They said literally when they left the uh, Temple Mount that you could begin to hear them at the pool where they were going three miles away. So it was so loud, boom, 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 boom. I mean, you could just hear them coming, and the closer they got, the louder it got. You could hear the Levitical choir singing in the background, and so these were very common to be seen during that celebration during the feast of tabernacles. Now, by the time of Jesus, uh, it wasn't only just used for tabernacles. For tabernacles, many people would put them on their sukkah, because one of the requirements of putting their sukkah up was that it ha- you had to be able to see through the roof of it. In other words, you couldn't have a roof that, that blocked your vision of the sky, because part of the Feast of Tabernacles was to remember the promise that God made to Abraham, that Abraham, do you see the stars in the sky? Count them if you can. You know what? And your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. So every tabernacle, whenever they would build their sukkah, their little temporary tent they would kind of fashion up against their house, they would remind themselves of how God dwelt with them out in the wilderness and they would remind themselves of the promises God had made as they would sit there and look up through that little makeshift tent and they would see those stars and they would remember how God was faithful to Abraham through one son, he delivered a whole nation. It's amazing, powerful. Okay. But by Jesus' time, the waving of these palm fronds had changed dramatically. Uh, It was no longer just thought of as a tabernacle's things. It actually had made its way into the Feast of Dedication as well because of one guy by the name of Judas Maccabees. So the the waving of the palm branches had become a symbol of nationalistic hope. And it was all related to this expectation that God had promised in the Old Testament a Messiah was going to come, and when he came, he was going to bring freedom. And of course, they remember what Judas Maccabees did whenever uh, the Greeks had come in, and they sacrificed a pig on the altar and defiled it, and this so that was all they needed. And so they got their makeshift army together, and they went and pushed the Greeks out. And this is where they celebrate Hanukkah, because... As they were fighting against the Greeks, the sun was about to go down, and they were running out of oil for their lamps. And they were thinking, we're not going to make it. We're not going to have enough oil. We're not going to be able to continue to fight. If we don't push them out and win tonight, we're not going to be able to beat them. And so all of a sudden, they prayed and asked God that he would fight in their favor, and the oil never ran out. It burned all night long. When they should have run out of oil a long time ago, it just kept burning and burning and burning, and they had the light that they needed to push back the Greeks, and they won their independence. And so they celebrate that at, at, at Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival of lights because God provided light. That's what they celebrate. Okay? So with Judas Maccabees and all that happened there, well, when Judas Maccabees and his brother came back from defeating the Greeks, they, people all started laying these palm fronds in their pathway. And they would actually wave them as well, and they would cry out this term, Hosanna, Hosanna, which this passage actually tells us about. Notice that not only did they wave palm branches, but John tells us that they also cried Hosanna. Now, Hosanna is a very interesting word. Now, how many of y'all are very familiar with the word Hosanna? You've heard it your whole life, right? You've probably sang it in songs uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of o, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna! You know, I mean, y'all, y'all know what it is. But do you know that that's a word that's actually been transliterated twice? So it starts in Hebrew, and what happened was when the Greek translators were translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, which we call the Septuagint, they just transliterated that word because they didn't have a word that they could really connect it to. So they just literally took the way it sounded in Hebrew and translated it into Greek. They just spelled it out with Greek letters and Greek sounds. Well, guess what? When our English translators came to translate the Greek New Testament into English, they did the same thing with that word. They just took it and spelled it out in English the way it sounded in Greek. So this is actually a Hebrew word that comes from a long time ago, and it's only mentioned one time in the entire Old Testament. Isn't that crazy? One mention is the only time we see the word Hosanna. And it's actually the Hebrew word, hoshe anah, hoshe anah, which means save now. So this was a word that had become associated with proclamation. It's a word that had become associated with praise. It was popular to go back to this one verse and memorize it and quote it and hold on to it. The word hosanna comes from one passage in Psalm 118, verse 25 and it goes like this save us which is literally the word hosanna hosanna we pray o lord o lord we pray give us success only time it's mentioned okay now here's what you need to know about this passage so obviously john is highlighting these things for us so we need to pay attention to them the first thing we know is they're waving these palm fronds now we know what that means okay now they begin to saying hosanna So we go back to Hosanna. Oh, Psalm 118. Was there anything else about Psalm 118? Yes. Psalm 118 is actually a small part of a larger section of Psalms. They're actually called the Hallel, which means praise. These were sung each morning by the temple choir every morning during the Feast of Tabernacles. It was also associated at this period of time with the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. Now, Passover even has this element where, if you go back and read the Mishnah, the wisdom literature of the Jewish rabbis, they even mention this uh, Hallel and this reading of these uh, psalms. The choir would sing Hallel when I was telling you that during the Feast of Tabernacles, when the Levitical choir would sing as they marched, Hallel was what they would sing. So there would come a part where they would say, Hosanna or Hasei Anah. Everyone would be waving their branches. Everyone would have their etrog and their lulav. And here's what's amazing. Whenever they got to 118, verse 25, where we find the only occurrence of hashe and Na, they would frantically wave their palm fronds. Okay? They would wave them like crazy. To the point that at some point in history, they quit calling it a lulav, and they started calling it their hosanna. That was what they would refer to it as. This is my Hosanna, okay? Because they would wave it, because what does hashéoná mean? Save now. And so whenever they would hear those words, save now, God, save now, they would be excited about that. So that became what they would call their Hosanna. Now, Psalm 18, or Psalm 118, I'm sorry. Psalm 118, pretty interesting, because the next passage that they quote comes from psalm 118 but it comes from a different section psalm 118 verse 26 okay we're down a little ways blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord we bless you from the house of the lord all right so this was an ancient blessing and it was spoken any time someone is going to make a pilgrimage to the holy land or a pilgrimage specifically to jerusalem So let's say that you lived somewhere in South Israel, and you were going to make a journey. You were going to go to one of the feasts, because not everybody could go to those feasts every year. They didn't have enough money. They weren't wealthy enough. And so maybe this was your year, and you were going to go. Whenever you set off on your journey, everyone before you would leave would say to you, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Midrash counted this passage as a messianic passage. In other words, the rabbis at some point, as they read and studied over the Psalms, they believed that this passage was inspired by God to point to the coming Messiah. They believed that somehow it was a a foreshadowing of what he would be like. It was a foreshadowing of a recognition of knowing him when he came. This, I think, gives us a very clear picture of what all those people had in their minds When they were waving palm fronds, they were shouting Hosanna and saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They believed that this was the Messiah. They believed that this was the conquering king who was coming, just like Judas Maccabees was. They were ready to lay those palm fronds in front of him and welcome him as their king. They really believed that this guy, because he raised the dead out of the grave, that this guy has the power to do whatever is needed to run the Romans out of here. So they were saying, save us now, Jesus. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We believe you are the Messiah. One thing is clear, they thought Jesus was going to be their deliverer. So, they sang this quote that was used to hail Judas Maccabees almost 100 years earlier when he drove out the Greeks. Now, the palm branches, as much as they were a religious icon, they were just as much a political icon as well. As matter of fact, in this same day and time, there was a, what they would call the Maccabean coin, uh, and this was used around in Judea. And you can see on the Maccabean coin on the right side, what do you see? You see the palm fronds. This was become a nationalistic symbol. It's like on our quarters and you see the eagle, right? When you see that, you know what that means. You know that that's one of the symbols of the United States of America. You see that eagle. You know that represents us. That's the same way it was for them when they saw these palm fronds. So in the midst of this incredibly huge expectation, Jesus delivered his own message that the people did not get that day as they were going back to the old testament and saying this is the kind of king you're going to be you're going to come in and you're going to save us and you're going to save us now you're going to be the conquering king just like judas maccabees was you're going to take us and you're going to drive out the romans from the holy land and we're going to have this place again and as jesus comes into that just incredible feather he makes his own statement Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He also goes to the Old Testament. He doesn't say anything. He just does it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation in his hand. What does Hosanna mean? Save now. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. Full of a donkey. So, look again at what John tells us in our passage, verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it was written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So, Jesus doesn't say anything, doesn't respond to what everyone's doing, but before he gets to where they are, he gets on. He's very intentional about it. Matter of fact, the other gospels tell us that he tells the disciples ahead of time, go find a of a donkey and bring them to me. So he knows what's coming. So he gets on this donkey and he rides into this procession where they're shouting these things and waving these things and they're not really paying attention, but he comes in on and he's making a statement. He's making a huge statement, okay? The statement that he's making is this He doesn't enter Jerusalem on a war horse. That would have played right into the crowd's hands. Instead, he chooses to present himself as a king who's coming in peace. Gentle, riding on a donkey. Now, the reason that's so powerful is because whenever you see an Old Testament passage like that, mentioned in the New Testament, again, you got to go back and you got to see the details, you got to see the context and what's coming to us, okay? In Zechariah, that passage that talks about when the Messiah, when the king comes, he'll be riding on the foal of a donkey, it also tells us a lot of other things. If you continue on, verse 10 and 11 specifically, listen to what they say. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. And the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the what does it say? Plural nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from river to the ends of the earth. I mean, think about that for a moment. You're gonna see in just a moment when this passage ends, that the Pharisees are like, Well, I guess all of our best efforts are for nothing. Because everybody, the whole world's going after him. Jesus was riding in on a donkey from an Old Testament passage that says, he will bring peace to the nations. Not the nation, the nations. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant is with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, because... There is uh, a lot of people who wonder, what is he talking about, the waterless pit? And they think maybe it was uh, um, something that was common in in Israel, a common euphemism that they would use to refer to a certain place. But I'm just going to tell you from just a South Alabama theologian, a waterless pit sounds like hell, doesn't it? I remember the story that Jesus told about Lazarus, the beggar. And he died, and he went to Abraham's side, and the rich man who never tended to him and never cared for him, that he went into Hades, into his torment. And he said, can Lazarus drop one drop of water on my tongue to relieve my agony for a moment? That is a waterless pit. Somehow, I want you to see in that short little passage, verses 9, 10, and 11 in Zechariah 9, There is a mouthful said, number one, this promised king was going to be associated with the cessation of wars, not the escalation of war. Number one. Number two, somehow this kingdom of this promised king was not going to be limited to Israel. It was going to go to all the nations. It wasn't just one place. It was all of them. And I think it's very interesting, the last part of Zechariah 9, verse 10, is actually a quotation from Psalm 72:8. 8, and when you go back to Psalm 72:8, it talks about a worldwide reign of Zion, that David's kingdom and his throne would be extended to the other nations. That's number two. Number three, this gentle king is somehow connected all the way back to the blood covenant between God and his people. Do you remember how that whole thing started? It was with Abraham, and God said, I'm entering into a covenant with you, Abraham, and what I want you to do is I want you to take these specific animals, and I want you to cut them in half in a sacrifice, and I want you to separate them into pieces. The front end of the animal on one side and the back end of the animal on the other, and it created what they would call a blood aisle." And back in the day, this was actually a common way when you entered into a very serious covenant, the two people entering into the covenant would walk through that aisle of blood and in the middle of it, standing in blood with all these animals around them, they would enter into a covenant with each other and they would say, if I don't fulfill my end of this covenant, may I end up like these animals? And they would walk out of those pieces. Well, what's interesting is when God calls Abraham, and he does all of this, he takes care of everything, and Abraham's fully expecting to walk into these animals and enter into a covenant with God, and God causes him to fall into a deep sleep. And when Abraham comes out of that and looks, he sees the image of what he said, a burning pot in the middle of those pieces, and that's where God speaks the covenant. God's the only one who came in to the blood aisle. God's the only one who entered into those pieces. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and it's going to be a blessing to all nations. And here, the reason John is drawing our eyes to all of these things that are being said is all of these ancient texts are coming to fruition Jesus is going to fulfill that blood covenant. It's going to be his blood that's going to be shed. It's going to be his blood that will offer peace to the nations. It will be his blood that will secure all the promises that God gave to Abraham so long ago. Passover is coming. Passover is coming. We're only four days away. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified... Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is just a small note to remind us that John didn't write this in the moment. He wasn't going, and today. Jesus said this, and those people are so dumb because they did not get it. You know, He's writing this way afterwards and going back and going, oh my gosh, look at all that we missed. We're in the heat of that moment. We were thinking the same way they were, and then we didn't realize that Jesus was making this. And so they're recording this after the fact, looking back, admitting right here in the text. They didn't understand it when they were going through it. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when they called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. These people were like, we were there. We saw what happened. They moved that stone away. The dead man came out of the grave. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So that tells us right there, there's two different groups of people. One of them are the people who literally saw Lazarus walk out of that grave. The other group of people, people just heard about it. And they're like, we want to see this guy. We want to see Lazarus. We want to see Jesus. We want to meet these people. So all of this is creating this energy that's creating this, this almost chaos, if you will. The excitement was contagious. And the Pharisees probably summed all of this up better than anybody in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look! The, what does it say? The world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. Now here's the amazing thing, is over and over again, John shows us that people say things without fully realizing what they've actually said. Caiaphas said, it's better for one man to die than to lose the whole nation. John says, yep, that's exactly right. Um, That's a prophecy from the high priest. He didn't realize it, but he was prophesying. Uh, Mary was anointing the feet of Jesus. She was just pouring out this costly sacrifice, I believe, because she was gonna use that on her brother, and her brother was back from the dead, and she thought, what better way, what better use of this than I was gonna use it on my dead brother, I'm gonna use it on my live Lord. And she was worshiping. She didn't. I don't think she had any idea that he was really gonna die. Jesus had to tell him. She was doing something out of her heart but it was something bigger, and Jesus knew what it meant and what it was really preparing for. And then I think here you see the Pharisees saying, look, the whole world is going after him. They had no idea what they're thinking. But think about the irony of that statement. As Jesus grows in his strength, at least in their eyes, he was growing in strength, and they were declining and weakening. The world has gone after him. And the Pharisees, when they say this, they mean everyone in Jerusalem is going after him. But John does something very unique here. He takes a word that typically wouldn't be used in this context and he uses it and he he uses the word cosmos. The cosmos has gone after him. Now the reason that's unique to John is because John is the one who consistently uses cosmos throughout his gospel to refer to the world as those who have rebelled against God, those who have turned their back on him, those who have run the other way. For God so loved the cosmos, the world, that he gave his only begotten Son. John consistently uses that. And here he turns what the Pharisees say with that. The cosmos is going after him. Again, we have a picture of people proclaiming something that they don't even fully realize, not even close. They had no idea that literally within. 50 years of this, Rome, Romans, were gonna be running after Jesus. I mean, Jews were running after Jesus, Greeks were running after Jesus. People from all ethnic backgrounds began to be drawn to Jesus. They had no idea what they were saying there, but they were speaking truth. And I wanna tell you the reason I think this is so pivotal. If you look at where we're going next, look at the next section right underneath that, first thing it starts off telling you is that the greeks have come to jesus the first thing he ends with the pharisee saying ah the whole world is going after him the very next passage and the greeks come seeking jesus and you know what happens in that passage jesus says my hour has come for the son of man to be glorified why because the nations are being drawn in that covenant of old that was made in the pieces of those animals is about to be fulfilled. It's gonna be my blood that's gonna be poured out, but when I do, the Jews, Israel, is gonna be a blessing to all the nations and they will be drawn in and I will bring and usher in peace. Now, maybe the most remarkable part of this whole passage is what you don't see. And it's actually alluded to. Remember I told you to tuck a couple things away in the back of your mind? The first verse says the next day. Right? Again, I said to you, we just think of the next day as the next day. I mean, it's whatever it is. We just think, okay, the next day of whatever day they were on. But they wouldn't think like that then. They were very familiar with what's happening. And the next day, he was being intentional. Or he would have just said, this happened, whatever. But the next day, the next day, the next day, what is that? It's Sunday. What is Sunday? Sunday of Passion Week. How far is Jesus away from the cross? He's four days away. Then what does that make Sunday. That makes it a very profound day. We call it Palm Sunday because we like to wave those palm branches around. But you know what the Jews called it? Lamb Selection Day. Because the original Passover says that every person, every family has to select a lamb and then watch it for four days to make sure that it's without blemish or anything wrong with it. Jesus walks into Jerusalem on lamb selection day and everyone says blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord literally israel has selected their passover lamb and guess what happens for the next four days you're going to see john's going to show you how everybody comes and tries to find something wrong with jesus oh he's this no nope, we can't find anything wrong with. oh he's this that's what he did no nope, we can't prove anything we don't have any witnesses and ultimately it all comes to an apex When Pilate says, this man's innocent. Can't find anything wrong with him. You know what happens next? He dies. Why? Because the lamb has been watched for four days, and now it's time for it to be sacrificed. It's been found without blemish or spot or any such thing. Jesus is examined for the next four days. Goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. Listen to what it says in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Because... Whenever you had the, sacri- the uh, sacrifice, the uh, Passover lamb, the whole thing had to be eaten. You couldn't have any leftovers. So if you had a small family, you had to welcome other families in to celebrate Passover. And it says there in verse 6 And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. The whole congregation comes together and kills their lamb. What happens? four days, Jesus is watched, the whole congregation comes together, and they kill the lamb. But this shouldn't be a surprise, because the whole Gospel of John opens up with John the Baptist going, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus himself just said back in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. How does he do that? By becoming a sheep and dying as a sheep. Just as God stepped into human form in the incarnation and he died as a man to save mankind. All of this is right here in front of us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save now, save now, save now. Abraham, was about to sacrifice his son. And Isaac was looking around, being the smart guy that he is. He's like, uh, I see the wood, I see the matches. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, not wanting to have that awkward conversation quite yet, said, and this was very profound, right? God will provide for himself a lamb. Now I've always wanted to go, I don't have the liberty to do this, but I always wanted to go and see if you could finagle The way those words are structured in that sentence to say, if it would be just as true to the text to say, God will provide himself as a lamb. I don't know. I don't know. It's pretty interesting that those words are right there. But here's the major thing about it. When God does provide a sacrifice for Abraham, what is it? It's not a lamb. It's a ram. It's what gets caught in the thicket, and that's what he sacrifices. God never provided a lamb that day. But you see the picture. He was willing to sacrifice his only son. He says, nope, you don't have to do it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to sacrifice my only son, and he will be the lamb that will be provided. John the Baptist, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin. I mean, the themes are there over and over and over again. And I think the thing that we have to take away from this is every time John presents these things, he wants us to ask ourselves, who are we in this story? Who are we? Well, I can't say that any of us would be the ones that get it, because nobody gets it in this entire story. Nobody knows it except Jesus. He's the only one that realizes what he's doing in the statement that he's making. They want a king that will come in with a sword. He's going to be a king that comes in with peace. They want someone to drive out the Romans. He's going to go and hand himself over to the Romans. I think the thing that we have to question ourselves on is this are we sometimes like that crowd? Do we sometimes have false and unholy expectations of Jesus? Are we the ones who sometimes who will gladly say, Hosanna, Hosanna, you're the king as long as you're the kind of king that I need you to be. As long as you're the conquering king and you come and push my problems aside. As long as you're the kind of king that comes in and provides prosperity for me. As long as you're the kind of king that comes in and brings health for me. As long as you're the one that keeps pushing away the difficult circumstances. I'm But if that doesn't happen, then I'm not going to be the kind of follower you want to be. That's what happens here. The question is, does it happen here? Do we come into a place like this and just gladly sing songs and go, what a great song, and then walk out of here and the first diagnosis, the first tragedy, the first financial crisis, we begin to question. God, if you're not gonna come through for me, then I guess I'll just have to take care of myself. If you're not gonna be the kind of king that I want you to be, I'm not gonna be the kind of follower that you want me to be. I think that we can be just as fickle as this crowd all in one minute and all out the next. We can say that we're all about his kingdom and walk out and live for ours. It's like one commentator said, said, but he says all, but all our perverted self-centered hopes become radically altered by this one who comes riding in on this young donkey. All of a sudden, what we think is so important, he demonstrates in humility, it's not that important. What we long for in this life, he comes in and says, you're longing for the wrong things. All the things that we think are so valuable and so important, he comes in and says, they're going to rust, they're going to burn, somebody's going to take it from you. If we listen to the wisdom of Jesus, he takes our eyes off of this life and this world and puts them somewhere else. And He says, that place is real. That place is forever. That place is your reward. Don't live and invest yourself in this life, in this world. You're going to be disappointed. And what do we often do? If you're not going to be the kind of God I want you to be here, then I'm going to make my own way. Sure, we may show up and sing the songs, read the passages, and say the prayers. But we demonstrate Who our king is when we walk out there and spend our money, spend our time, spend our resources, and demonstrate the values that we have. The heaviness of this passage is, what kind of king do you want? And is Jesus really going to be that kind of king? If your greatest need was for education, God would have sent you a teacher. If your greatest need was entertainment, God would have sent you an entertainer. If your greatest need was money, God would have sent you a financial advisor. But your greatest need was your sins to be forgiven. So God sent you a sacrificial Savior who took your place to take care of the core problem that we all have, our sins. What kind of king do you want let's pray together lord in the heaviness of a passage like this it just reminds us that so easily our hearts can be turned towards things that are so superficial and trivial that we can literally put so much value in things that waste away That we can even get our identity wrapped up in things that aren't gonna last. And your word keeps calling us to, you are the true and forever king, and your kingdom will not fade away. And you keep asking us to invest in your kingdom. And so often, we nod our heads and we go and invest in our own. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for being just like that crowd. Forgive us for being like the Pharisees or forgive us for being so hard-hearted, for being selfish, for not seeing you in the beauty, the dignity that you are. God, may we see you fresh and anew. and May our hearts be gladdened. May we truly live out the Hashanah, understand true salvation. And may we be glad with the nations to see your kingdom come and to see your will be done. We ask this in the powerful and sovereign name, Jesus, our Lord, amen.